You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. Well, one of the things that we've been saying as we've been making our way through the Ten Commandments is that in giving us the Ten Commandments, uh, God isn't just giving us sort of his top ten list of things he doesn't want us to do. He's not coming to us with his expectations and going, Here, here's the deal. I mean, certainly there's that aspect to it, but we serve a God who creates by the power of his word. And we learn that right in the first couple pages of the Bible. Like, you don't have to get, dig deep in the Bible to figure that out. You open the Bible to the first couple of pages, and what do you find? You find a God who, by the power of his word, creates the heavens and the earth and everything in them in six days with ten, and that number significant, directives, God creates everything that is. He speaks and he says things like, let there be light. And then what do you read immediately after that? It says, and there was light. Why? Because that's the power of the word of God. We come to the New Testament and it talks about the power to inspire faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. You get the idea? Well, when we get to the Ten Commandments, written incidentally by the same guy who gave us the account of creation... We find these Ten Commandments by which God is creating sustainable society. And so, yeah, he comes to us and he says things like, you shall not murder. Why? Because society is not sustainable if life is not protected. Does that make sense? Next week, he'll come to us and he'll say, you shall not steal. What is he protecting? Property, possessions, fundamental things. And today, in between those two commandments, actually, he comes to us and he says, you shall not commit adultery. What is the Lord after with that? He is protecting, by means of that commandment, the most fundamental component of any human society in any age, in any culture, and in any place. And that most fundamental component is the component of marriage. God is saying, we're going to protect marriage. And incidentally, as you read through the Ten Commandments and you read through the creation account, you realize that marriage is not just a topic here, but it's also, and most profoundly, a topic all the way back there at the beginning of the whole Bible. So when you go to the creation account, again, you find a God who creates the heavens and the earth in the space of six days with 10 different directives, and all the way along the creative process, what is he doing? At the end of every day, he says, it is good, and then again, it is good, and then again, it is good, and then again, it is good, and the ladies are going to love this. And then he creates the man, and he says, it's not good, right? (laughs) He does that. It's true. Now, there's something in understanding why. It's not because he created the man or because he created the man first or because he created the man and then the man then messed everything up immediately. Now, he does eventually mess things up if you know the rest of the tale. But at this point in the story, he's a perfect man. So what's not good? And the answer to that is he's single. He's not married. How does that strike you? Because I think if you're single or if you love anyone who's single, so that's all of us then, right? All of a sudden we're going, yeah, 
You're thinking, wait a minute, does that mean it's not good if I'm not single or if my son or daughter isn't single or if my best friend is single? I mean, does that, is it not good that I'm not married? And the answer to that is, no, 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 that's not what the Bible is saying at all. And in fact, when you look at what the Bible says about singleness, particularly when you get into the New Testament, you realize that the Bible does not treat being single like it's some kind of disease that you need to be cured of. And though I think sometimes for those of us who really long to be married, it feels that way. It's like, Lord, heal me. But that's not the perspective of Scripture. Instead, the Bible comes to you and says, listen, being single is a sacred gift from God that is to be embraced and made the most of for as long as it lasts, even if as long as it lasts is the rest of your earthly life. There's just no question about that. Paul actually prefers it for some certain reasons, missional reasons, to marriage itself. The Apostle Paul was single. Jesus was single. Some of the most productive Christians that have ever lived were single. And they were some of the most productive Christians that have ever lived specifically because they were single. Being single gives you the gift of time. I've been married now almost 26 years. We have four kids, okay? It takes a lot of time, marriage and family. It does. And I don't begrudge that. I don't resent that. I enjoy that. And I know that if you're single, you're probably sitting there going, hey man, I would gladly trade all my free time for that. I get it. I would too. But you still have that free time. So what would the Bible encourage you to do? Embrace it. Use it in ministry. Use it to develop a wide range of diverse friendships that you can really go deep in. Use it to spend time with Jesus and really get to know Him. You have time. And it's a gift. And it also gives you the gift of a really unique ministry opportunity. Now, why do I say that? Because we live in a day and in an age in which it's pretty much universally thought that unless you have some significant other person in your life to love and be loved by and to share everything with, you cannot possibly be fulfilled. You cannot possibly be satisfied. Life is going to be a dud. And here's what the gospel does. It comes to us and says, hey, you know what? That's just not true. Married or unmarried, Jesus is the source of our satisfaction, guys. He is the source of our fulfillment. He is the one that we are to share life with. And there is an abundant joy in that life. And as a single person, you have kind of a unique ability to reveal that. The reason that it was not good for Adam to be married is because Adam is the first man on planet Earth and he is given the assignment of filling planet Earth with people and he cannot do that by himself. And so we read in Genesis 2 verse 18 that the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. And so then God said, I will make him a helper fit for him, which means equal to him, adequate for him. She has a different role. That's clear but in standing and dignity and value and significance in every significant way, she is absolutely every bit his equal. But now what do we have in this narrative so far? We have God declaring in this otherwise perfect universe that there's something not good, which is alarming, really. And he has identified what it is, that this man, who's supposed to fill the world with people, is alone, and he's identified the answer, I, God, will make a helper fit for him. And so what you're expecting to happen next is that God's going to make the woman and bring her to the man. Problem solved. But instead, what you get is this kind of bizarre-sounding story, until you understand it, of God 
parading all the animals and all the creatures before the first man and giving the man the assignment of naming all of the animals and the birds and the whole deal. I'll read it in a second, you know, and you, you think to yourself, well, why would God do that? I mean, certainly it didn't strain the divine mind to come up with names for all of the animals. That's not it. The Lord is doing something. He's teaching the man a lesson. He's cultivating in the heart of this first husband-to-be an appreciation for the value of the one that the Lord is going to bring to him. It says, Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens, and then what? Brought them to the man to see what he would call them, and whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. And so the man gave names, and I just try to imagine how tedious this had to be, to all of the livestock and to all of the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. Good grief. But for Adam, and this is the whole point of the exercise, there was not found a what? Because it's the same language, a helper fit for him, which means necessarily then that God must have brought all the animals to Adam in pairs. In other words, it's not just Mr. Lion, but it's Mr. Lion and the helper fit for him. Mrs. Lion, so Mr. and Mrs. Lion. Get the idea? Mr. and Mrs. Giraffe, Mr. and Mrs. Antelope, Parakeet. Get the point? And what's the point? The point is for Adam to go, hey, wait a minute. There's no Mrs. Man. And, and to realize her significance. Bruce Swalke beautifully says this. He says, rather than squandering, don't miss this, his most precious gift on one who is unappreciative. God waits until Adam is prepared to appreciate the gift of woman, and then he creates the bride. Okay, but I want you to notice how he creates the bride, because we're talking about marriage. That's what God is seeking to protect with do not commit adultery. And what this shows you is what lies at the heart of marriage. This is the center of this precious institution. It says that the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon this, as yet at least, sinless man whose name we know to be Adam. And while Adam slept, God wounded the sinless man. He pierced his side and he took one of his ribs and he closed up its place with flesh, which no doubt left a scar. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he then made, or he fashioned, if you will, into a woman, and he brought her to the man, whom he had obviously then awakened the man now from this deep, deep sleep to receive. And then the man, of course, got upset and said, Lord, what happened to my side? Good grief, look at the scar. And I, you know, wait, I'm missing a rib. Do you have any painkillers? Because every time I cough or sneeze or laugh or, you know, move or twist or turn, I broke some ribs once, so I know this. I, you know, it's like it's soap, and it's not what he does. He sees the fruit of his sacrifice, which is the woman. And he forgets all about the scar, and he forgets all about the rib, and he forgets all about the discomfort. None of that matters. It all falls away. It's remarkable. He waxes poetic. He puts most of us guys to shame. The man saw her and he said this. Now listen to this. At last. You can hear the longing in that. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So then what is it that lies at the center of this precious institution called marriage that God, by this commandment that we're looking at today that says you shall not commit adultery, is seeking to protect it's the Christian gospel. For what is that story of Adam and Eve and the man and he's sinless and he's caused to sleep and he's pierced in the cell? What is all of that if not a picture 
of Jesus Christ, the sinless Son of God. Come into the world on a rescue mission for us. Caused by His Father, required even to sleep, the sleep of literal death, and to what end? To pay the debt that we owe to God in our place that we could never have paid and that we owe Him for taking the lives that He's created and given to us as a gift to be used to worship and serve Him. Yeah, and we've, you know, done other things with them. Jesus, who while He is sleeping the sleep of death on the cross, is pierced in exactly one place, and that is His side. That's how they confirm that He's dead. They jab a spear up into His side. What is the gospel? It is that through faith in the sufferings of the sinless man who is Christ, in his death, in his burial, in his awakening from death, in his resurrection from the dead, we are made clean. We are made pure. All of the obstacles we've created between us and God are removed. The the scriptures come to us in the New Testament and they say, you are a new creation. Do you hear that language? And what does the Bible call every Christian collectively everywhere that has ever lived? Past, present, future, we are referred to as the bride of Jesus. What does that mean? It means that we are being made into fit companions for the Son of God Himself and eternally so, which is remarkable. I mean, it has incredible implications for who we are. It has incredible implications for who we will one day yet be. But we're talking about this precious institution called marriage today that God with this commandment that says you shall not commit adultery is seeking to protect And it has incredible implications for that too. I'm going to give you four. The gospel being at the heart of marriage tells us, first of all, that our greatest treasure in marriage is not what this person that we're married to offers to us or can do for us. But instead, our greatest treasure in marriage, guys, is that person himself or herself. The gospel's at the heart of marriage. Okay, well, here's what Jesus didn't do. He didn't come to me and he didn't come to you and go, hey, um, you know what? Before I decide what I'm going to do for you, I'm I'm just kind of wondering, what what do you have to offer me? What are you going to do for me? It's not the way that it works. I mean, for reasons known only to him, he so treasured us that he gave his life for us before we said or did a thing. Knowing everything that we would say. Knowing everything that we would do. Secondly, the gospel being at the heart of marriage tells us that our marriages can actually be strengthened through adversity. And the reason I say that is because the wounds and the scars that we sustain and collect up for one another as we move through life and marriage together should, in fact, make us more beautiful to one another as we move through life and marriage together. I guarantee you that when, you know, Eve was presented to Adam, she didn't take a look at him and go, you know, couldn't you have given me somebody without a scar? I mean, come on. Look, I'm counting his ribs, Lord. Do you have somebody else? I mean, like, for she knew what the scar represented. She saw the scar. It made him more beautiful to her. Why? Because she realized that he had sustained that for her. It's true with Jesus, too. Physical human body, real scars. When we get to heaven, you know, we're not going to be repulsed by the scars of Christ. The perfect man. We're going to be compelled to love him all the more because we'll see in each of those scars the love that he has for us. It's a remarkable thought. Thirdly, the gospel being at the heart of marriage tells us that we must at times sacrifice for our spouse. And frankly, Paul confirms this in the New Testament in Ephesians 5.25. He comes to the husband and he says, love your wives. How? As Christ loved the church and did what? 
gave himself up for her. I've had so many guys come to me after messages on that and go, listen, I, you know, like I've heard that like 50,000 times. And so I just don't know what to do with that. Like, I mean, I, I get it. I'm supposed to sacrifice and be selfless. And like, practically speaking, what, what does that look like? And I can't answer that question with a ton of detail for you, but I will tell you that 1 Peter 3.7 is really helpful to me in that regard. Because Peter there comes to us as husbands and he says, look, husbands, and it's pretty straightforward, live with your wives, how? In an understanding way. And I think what that means is that you and I as husbands are supposed to work really, really hard to understand the lives of our wives from their perspective. I remember probably, I don't know, 15 years ago, walking in our neighborhood with Beth, and I, like, I even remember where we were on the walk, which is kind of odd, but but asking her, like, what does that mean to you? Because I'm, you know, I'm a guy, right? I like, I want to get it right. I'm trying. Like, so what does that mean to you? And, and I thought it was very helpful. She said, you know, I think at least part of what that means to me is I just want to be appreciated. <laughs> you know, I want you to see that what I do is really hard and communicate to me that you see that what I do is really hard. I want you to value the contribution that I'm making to the family or that I'm making at church or that I'm making to whatever it is that I'm invested in. And and, and when I pour my heart out to you, I don't want you to try to solve all of my problems for me because that's our tendency, isn't it? She said, I just want you to understand how those problems make me feel. And I thought, that's helpful. But it takes effort. It requires intentionality. It means sacrifice, and not just for us, but for the wives too. For Paul comes to the wife in Ephesians 5.33, and he says, let the wife see that she respects her husband. And here's why, because like it or not, the gravitational pull of the heart of every man is toward people and environments that communicate respect to us. And so Paul's coming and tipping us off to that and saying, okay, so be that person. And in your home, create that environment. And you say, well, how do I do that? And I can't answer that with a lot of particularity, but I can tell you that the answers come out of you recognizing, first of all, that your husband's primary need is for affirmation more than anything else. He needs you, or he needs to know that you're with him. He needs to know that you're behind him. He needs to know that even if he has colossally blown it, that you still believe in him. I've said a hundred times, if you want a husband you can respect, start respecting the husband that you have and watch what happens. It's like giving water to a dying plant, really. But it takes sacrifice, doesn't it? It's not an easy thing to do. We are called, the gospel being at the heart of marriage, calls us to sacrifice willingly for each other. And then fourthly and finally, the gospel being at the heart of marriage should allow us to feel safe with one another. It's interesting to me that right after Adam waxes poetic about his bride, God then gives us his commentary on marriage in Genesis 2 verse 24. He says this, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And then in verse 25, he says, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And obviously, there's a physical aspect to that comment. No question. But I'll tell you, the nakedness of marriage is far, far deeper, far, far more encompassing, far, far more significant than just the physical. 
And it is the covenant of marriage, guys, that gives us the capacity. It creates an environment of safety by which we are then allowed to authentically be naked with one another. That is to say, reveal who we are in our entirety. There's a difference between being married and living together. There just is. There's a difference between being married and dating. There is, and it's called a covenant, and that is a huge difference. When we are dating, we are all of us posers. All of us, aren't we? I mean, you know, we're not trying to be, but we're trying to close a deal, you know, or at least keep a deal open. Are we not? I mean, I want to know the deal. I can close the deal, or at least I might be able to close a deal if I want to be able to close the deal. I don't think that through. It's not sinister. But we're all posing and we're kind of wondering, oh, you know, I mean, if she sees this, if I tell her this, if this weakness is exposed, if this flaw is seen, if this addiction is... Will she still love me? Will he still love me? What are you saying in marriage? You are making a covenant with this person and you're saying, listen, I I know there are going to be things that I'm going to see that I've never seen in you. And some of it's going to be awesome and amazing and attractive and wonderful and better than I ever imagined. And some of it's going to be pretty shocking and off-putting and there might be days when I want to run. But I'm not going to run because I am deciding before God and all these people that I'm going to love you. And therefore, you can be you with me and authentically, therefore, then be loved. How can you be loved if you're not known? If you're holding back and hedging, they just have a partial picture of you. They might love the partial picture, but you know the rest of the picture and you're going, if I filled in the blanks, I don't think they'd love me. Therefore, I'm still not loved, am I? Marriage is different. It's unique. It's precious. It's sacred. It's hugely a gift from God. And here's the deal with adultery. The physical aspect of the marriage relationship, that is sex, is a physical expression of the marriage relationship itself, which makes it also sacred and precious. And so God says, listen, that's for married people and only with the people they're married to. Do not commit adultery. Not with your body, and as Jesus makes clear in the New Testament, don't, don't do it with your mind either. It's a violation of your covenant. So, in closing, I would ask you, first of all, if you're married, uh, what are you doing to protect your marriage? Because that's the heart of this commandment. The commandment is saying, protect marriage, cultivate marriage. So just in light of what we talked about, are you treasuring the person that you're married to, or are you actually kind of, have you fallen off and into this kind of deal where you're trying to get more out of them and they're trying to get more out of you. You know, I want more from you than I'm giving to you. And I I mean, we all fall into those ruts. We do that. We're selfish. We're people. Is that where you're at? Are you valuing the sufferings and the sacrifices of your spouse by allowing those things to make them all the more beautiful to you? Or are you ignoring them? Are you taking them for granted? Are you overlooking them and therefore failing to truly appreciate this person that God has given to you? Are you husbands making the sacrifices necessary to see the life of your wife from her perspective and then, and this is actually maybe even the harder part, to figure out how to communicate to her that you actually do know how she feels? And just as an aside, ladies, it's helpful if you can let us know when we get it right. You know what I mean? 
Like if we can say, listen, I am trying to communicate this to you and I know that somehow I keep falling on my face here and I realize that I ought to be better at it than I am, but if you could give me some pointers, my heart is to get it right. Help me get it right. Everybody wins. And wives, are you making the sacrifices necessary to communicate respect to your husband and to create in your home an environment of respect for him? And guys, we need to not be so prideful and easily wounded that we can't help them do that for us too. We need to open up and go, yeah, well, if I can just be vulnerable for a minute, that really stung. And the reason for that is blah, blah, blah. We're in this together. We're here to help each other succeed. We give the benefit of the doubt that that's in fact the heart of the other person. And we work together until we get there. Does that make sense? And then if you're single, what are you doing to protect yourself and to prepare yourself for the marriage that God may yet still have for you? And what are you doing with the gift of your singleness in this season of life? How are you embracing it as a gift from God and using, for example, the gift of extra time for ministry, for mission, for pursuit of your relationship with Christ? as a ministry opportunity really uniquely to speak to our culture about satisfaction and so forth. Because being married and being single are both great callings and great gifts from the Lord. And this commandment about sex and sexuality is really designed to protect both groups. So chew on that, okay? Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for the power of your word, which in fact calls things into being that are not. Stuff appears out of nothing because you have spoken. And I pray, Lord, that you would uh, speak to our hearts, whatever word it is that we need. God, many of us are weighted down by guilt and by shame, by all kinds of mistakes and things that we've done. And we need a word of pardon that creates forgiveness and joy and freedom in our hearts. A levity from from the burdens that we've carried. I pray that you would speak that word. Many of us need a word of wisdom, of insight in terms of how to be a better husband or how to be a better wife or how to live more missionally as a single person and authentically embrace this. Give us that word, a word of perspective that helps us to see whatever season of life that we're in from your perspective and by faith to receive it. And some of us, Lord, just need you to speak a word of faith into our hearts in terms of the reality that you even exist. That by your spirit that you are present, that this Jesus is real and that your love for us is such that Christ really came and he really suffered and he really died, not for his guilt, but for ours. And he's really risen for he is the author of life. And that in him is eternal life. And in this life, meaning and purpose and forgiveness and significance and joy. So speak that word, Lord, we pray. Whatever word we need, we would ask that you would do it in Christ's name. Amen.